This is Pete Lukowski with AmateurGolf.com. On Monday, May 18th, we heard that the USGA will just have four championships for the remainder of the year, and those will be held with no qualifiers. I decided that amateur golfers would want to hear from the USGA, and I was fortunate that Stuart Francis, the current president, was willing to spend some time with us. He was very generous with his time, and we touched on a number of topics that I think you'll be interested in. So let's take it away on a special edition of The Notebook presented by Callaway Golf. USGA shirt, and I have my blue blazer. So I think, in one respect or another, we're all connected to golf and at the highest levels here. Exactly, that's right. <clears throat> this is the the shirt is the kindler, gentler USGA. <laughs> well, that's um, appropriate right now, and we have Stuart Francis, the president of the USGA, and I really appreciate you taking some time, given what's going on at your organization and across the world with AmateurGolf.com. Well, Pete, thank you very much. It's nice to connect with you uh, on video. I've been a uh, long-term AmateurGolf.com member, and uh, I think you do a great job in what you do. So happy to uh, share some thoughts with you today. Thanks. Yeah, and when I asked you to be on the call, I had a feeling that one way or another, given that the USAM applications were going live this week, I had a feeling we'd hear something from the USGA. And I was a little bit surprised and taken aback that the tournament um, schedule has been condensed to four events, but yet who is going to say anything about an organization making those decisions? It's very difficult right now. So maybe we could get right to it and you could walk me through the process because I know this just didn't happen overnight. No, this was a challenging uh, set of circumstances that we had to fully evaluate before we could come up with a plan that made sense to conduct one of our core values, which is great championships. The, and the environment was sort of a moving target you know, every week over the past month related to the federal government, various state governments. So at the end of the day, as we stepped through all the options, we realized that to ask the uh, allied golf associations around the country to commit today to be able to conduct 100 plus qualifiers for the USAM and the US Open and the, uh, the, the uh, Women's Amateur and the Women's Open was just a, a very large bridge that was challenging for them. Each of the AGAs had also delayed many of their championships. Uh, we would have had to condense a whole series of qualifiers into a very short period of time. And our overall goal is to conduct great championships. And we just didn't feel we could do that in terms of doing qualifying and conducting, you know, another eight or 10 championships more this year. So that's why we made the decision we did. Okay, well, and I was actually thinking that that's the way it would go, particularly for the US Amateur, because I know, you know, going to Bandon Dunes Resort for the men and, uh, you know, just to, something that I know the USGA really wanted to do. And I know the US Amateur is obviously a, a very old and traditional golf tournament. Um, many of our viewers might not realize that the British Amateur, which is called the Amateur Championship by the Royal and Ancient, but sometimes we refer to it as a British Amateur, that tournament has been conducted without qualifiers for a while now since the Wagger. So this is really a test for Wagger in terms of USGA application. Um, it's gotten a lot better over the years. You've really improved that ranking system. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I would agree with you. If if Wagger was not in the position it's in now, which we think is a very good representation of the ranking and caliber of golfers, amateur golfers around the world, we probably couldn't have made this step. But we do feel it's an accurate representation. And then there will be a number of other categories of people that will uh, also be exempted in, if you will. It's not going to be straight wagger, just in terms the same thing with the US Open. It's not gonna be straight world golf ranking. We're gonna to try to replicate the field that we would have been able to achieve had we conducted a regular rigorous qualifying schedule. So I think we'll be able to do a, it, we won't be able to do a perfect job of that, we'll, but, but we'll be able to do a job that's highly representative of the field we would have uh, gotten beforehand. I have no doubt about it. And I know our viewers and, and players won't have any question that the USGA can handle this. Um, the chance for somebody to make it through a local US Open qualifying and then to the sectional and go all the way, it happens once in a while. And it's happened that we've had a champion uh, certainly going through sectional qualifying. But um, I think that this year to have those championship, uh, as you said, to have them in the way that the USGA wants to conduct them, and this is a, a great compromise. And uh, we look forward to a day when their USGA schedule can return. I mean, what, what do you think it would take to, you said you talked to the to state and local governments, to your allied associations. What do you think you would feel comfortable with at the USGA level to conduct a full schedule, say in 2021? Well, I think assuming we have, and the various governmental entities have and rely upon expert medical opinions and advice that the COVID-19 hasn't returned in force or is under control or the social distancing models work and or there's a vaccine, I think there are, it's just so early to understand what the impact on all of society in 2021 will be. But certainly um, for USGA-related championships, we're going to be guided by the science, by the, the medical opinions, but we're going to want to do something in a way that hopefully returns us to our roots, which is 14 great championships, a Walker Cup at Seminole, and all of them conducted with qualifiers that people appreciate the chance to be able to play in. We have over 45,000 players who sign up to qualify for USGA events each year. And everyone has their dream of maybe this is my year I qualify, maybe this is my year I do something. I still have the dream of qualifying for another US amateur someday, although I think that ship may have sailed already. But I, I, you know, we recognize how meaningful the ability is to qualify for a USGA championship to, to many, many golfers, and we want to restore that as quickly as we can. And I think it'll be 2021. Well, I want to see you at Seminole. So after watching the golfers out there this weekend, it just, it's fabulous. I've never had a chance to play it, but to walk those fairways during a Walker Cup, hopefully with an audience, that would just be incredible. So um, the USGA has great plans with, with uh, if I'm not mistaken, Cypress Point coming up as a Walker Cup site as well. Of course, you're a little bit familiar with. Well, exactly. I do feel the Walker Cup is truly one of the most distinctive championships uh, in all of golf. Uh, the spectators get to walk the fairways without real roping, keeping them out. Uh, it's a wonderful set of uh, players that have and develop great camaraderie. 
it's a highly coveted position to be selected to. And I do think Seminole's just the perfect site for it. The, the level of exacting requirements, particularly for your shots into the green complexes, is extraordinary. They're firm greens, they have interesting contours, and uh, the best comment somebody I think described even on the broadcast this week was, you look at your round of golf and say, how many greens did you visit at Seminole? Because if you don't hit it in the right spot, it trickles off into uh, uh, the side of the green. And then if you look at the Walker Cup over the next uh, number of competitions, we have uh, Seminole in 21, uh, the old course at St. Andrews in 23, and we have Cypress Point in 25. So I think that reflects the level of stature of, of the Walker Cup. The one other thing I'd add, and I, I'm sure you've been to a few Walker Cups, what's so rewarding is to see the level of depth and commitment that former Walker Cup players have to supporting the uh, competition and showing up and rooting for their players and their team. It's just extraordinary how many of them make the commitment to come back, even though they played in a Walker Cup 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And that's one of the unique aspects about golf is that most of us can remember every shot we hit in a championship 20 years ago, but you can't remember what you went to the store to pick up uh, later today. So golf has that level of imprint into your brain, which shows you how meaningful it is to everybody. I'm right in agreement with you, and I've been lucky enough to, to attend Walker Cups across the pond. And here, LA Country Club was fantastic, obviously showcasing a course that most people don't ever get to walk those fairways. And it was fabulous. Um, so that, without a doubt, and my recommendation to everybody watching is attend a Walker Cup. It's uh, up close and personal with players you're going to be watching on the PGA Tour later anyway. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, the USGA made a lot of changes to the rules last year, and then this year, the implementation of the World Handicap System. Would you ever have imagined that putting with the flagstick in would end up taking on such a, a prescient, you know, you were prescient in the, in the decision? Well, there's no question about that. Let's put it this way. I don't think we nor anyone else predicted a pandemic and the ramifications which have uh, flown through the world with that. But we were happy to... Uh, embark upon the rules of modernization project a number of years ago. And we think after uh, people had a period of time to adjust to them, which always takes a little bit of time, everybody has reasonably embraced almost every change we've made. And I do think they've been for the good of the game. I think it's speeded up play. I think it's made things more straightforward. And clearly uh, the fact that you can keep the flagstick in the hole is probably one of the key reasons that the states are allowing golf to take place right now. You know, the other thing I'd point out about golf is that the industry as a whole, and the USGA was a key part of it, but only one part of it, was very thoughtful about how we collectively address the various regulatory authorities, state, national, et cetera, and we didn't push too aggressively to reopen golf way ahead of everything else. But what we did do is we had very clear guidelines as to how golf could be played in a socially responsible and medically careful way. And each golf course and each state, now that they've rolled it out, 
has have followed those guidelines. And I think if you look at, if you were a state administrator or a federal administrator and you said, okay, we let people play golf, how are they doing in following the rules? I think you would unanimously say golfers have done a great job. I think if you broaden it out to say, think about people who've gone to other recreational aspects that have been reopened, hiking, beaches, uh, you know, beach towns, whatever, I'd say they've been less diligent about following the rules than golf has. So I do feel like golf waited, they didn't push to get ahead of the other comparable activities and it paid off because we were allowed to return at the same time and we've embraced it in a way that I think all legislatures should be pretty comfortable that golf is a social distancing sport and people are treating it responsibly. No question. I've seen that on the course myself. I mean, I think by nature, golfers are complainers. We're going to complain about almost everything, but we're also rules followers. We want to know if you're supposed to ground your club in the bunker or if you're not supposed to touch things. I mean, it's just amazing to me how quickly people have. I've never seen a person since I've played four times since the return. I haven't seen a person reach for the flag stick. Totally agree. Yeah, same with me. I've played three times. It's just been great. Everybody has totally embraced these important medical rules. Additionally, what's been interesting is, you know, in a number of states, you can only play in prearranged twosomes. You have to get starting times or threesomes, which include a family. And, and I would say that uh, it's shown the golf community here a different side of golf, which is twosomes, fast play, spread out tee times, keep moving, don't stick around after the round. And it's actually been a very pleasant experience, I think, for almost everyone that I've spoken with. They said, you know, this is actually kind of fun. Maybe we should have twosome Tuesdays or something. So, there, you know, you can always find a silver lining in just about everything. And I think with how golf has embraced it and the way that golf has enforced the guidelines has made it quite a bit of fun. I agree. And I'm lucky enough to be playing um, Torrey Pines in San Diego. Uh, we got off the course on May 1st and the news cameras were rolling. That was what a big day it was to return to golf. So everything does have a silver lining. It's terrible what's happened in our country and in all industries, golf, obviously, uh, healthcare, and, and all the people that have, have been affected health-wise and, and passed away from this. But everything does have some type of silver lining. And I think we're all being kinder to each other. And I think in golf, we're all sort of figuring out that we love this game. We missed it when it was gone, right? Yeah, so totally agree with you. I think people realize what a, well, it's been described by many people as the greatest game ever invented by mankind. And I think that description is accurate and probably reinforced when it's been taken away from you as it was for several months. So, right. so Back to you is, uh, you know, you, Stuart, are, are really, um, and I, I feel like I can call you your first name because I know you. So you are the president of the USGA, but um, I uh, have known you for a long time and, and you've been on our site and, and used it to look for tournaments and, and results. And you made a run at the San Francisco City Super Senior last year, yeah. uh, all the way to the finals, if I'm not mistaken. This year you couldn't play because of all that was going on with your position, but I know you wanted to. Yeah, no, that's right. No, it's, I... You know, I love competitive amateur golf. I love just teeing it up against whomever else has qualified or entered the event. 
I like stroke play, I like match play, but to me, that's the essence of golf. And it's also why I've been so uh, appreciative of being able to have a leadership role in the game of golf. But I'm, I'm open to play a number of tournaments this year. Uh, it's, you know, it's not easy, because you know, obviously the USGA role takes quite a bit of time and I do have a full-time job as well. So I do my best, but uh, you know, hopefully there'll at least be a few tournaments, at least in Northern California or the state events that I can carve the time out to compete in and then at least prepare a little bit. As we saw from the uh, COVID relief rounds at Seminole, even the pro professionals, the best players in the world could use a little bit of practice time. Uh, and when you don't have it, you're, a couple of your skills uh, evaporate for a short period of time. So I'm hoping to commit to a few things, play in them and prepare for them. That's great to hear because um, you've played in US amateurs, you've played on your team at Princeton, you've played all your life. You, I don't think there's ever a point where you stopped playing. And I'm, the trophy's in the back behind you. Uh, anything you're particularly proud of back there uh, that's uh, sitting well, on, your, I, on your shelf? I, I, I set it up this way just because the lighting in my home office is, is not designed for uh, video conferences. <laughs> but um, anyway, you know, I have my San Francisco City uh, trophy from last year as runner up. I have a nice, uh, Division One College Golf All-American plaque back there that I'm particularly proud of. I've got a scorecard from a 64. I have a scorecard from when I played with and beat Arnold Palmer. And uh, so there are a lot of things that mean a lot to me, whether they mean anything to anyone else, uh, who knows. But I, I remember every moment of golf and how important it's been to, to my life. And that's why I like to keep these things in my office. As, as I think about it, and probably you and others as well, I mean, you've made your career being an important player yourself in golf, along with having a publication that is read and appreciated by uh, the majority of amateur players. But if you think about most people, the, the benefits they get from golf are enormous. You know, I started when I was young. I played my first tournament when I was five, and it taught me how to uh, interact with grown-ups. It taught me how to accept defeat uh, graciously. It taught me how to really focus on things. It was critical in my ultimately being recruited by and accepted at Princeton. Uh, and you just create lifelong friends in golf that I think is a unique aspect to the sport. So it's hard to imagine any other activity, at least for me to imagine any other activity that has been close to as meaningful to everything in my life as golf. So that's why I like putting some of these things around me, even if others might say, boy, that's a pretty obscure tournament. I've never heard of the Northern Ohio match play championship, but um, that, that's over there. <laughs> Well, we, we had a gentleman, and we've just put it on the website uh, by the name of uh, Ryan Terry. He's uh, he won one of the last tournaments played before we all had to take this break that we weren't inspecting, and it was the Florida Azalea Amateur. And he was looking for something to play in this weekend, and he flew from Nashville to Iowa to play in the Tri uh, Tri State Masters, which is normally played on three different states, three different rounds. They played it uh, all in Iowa for safety reasons. 
and uh, he ended up losing in a playoff. He almost won the thing. So people will do almost anything to compete. We're seeing obviously full golf courses right now. The pent up demand is there for golf. And um, you know, with you running the USGA's board, which is what the president is basically the head of the board of 14 people on the executive committee. You've already served on the executive committee. You've been in equipment and rules. And I forget the other role you've had, but you, you go through a five-year process. And whether you knew you were going to be president or not, the term when you got involved in that process was two years, and now it's three years. So another appropriate thing that the USGA didn't see this coming, but I think it's important to have a leader stay the course for three years. That's going to be good. Well, I think so. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The USGA really has a very strong group of senior people who are real golf professionals in terms of administration. John Bodenhammer, who obviously led the charge on making our decisions around what championships to conduct this year, is a you know 35-year golf administrator. He played golf for Brigham Young University when I think they either won or finished second in the NCAAs. He's qualified for a number of U.S. amateurs. Mike Davis obviously has spent his entire career in golf. And the entire team has been active in administrating uh, and administering golf for you know, 10, 20, 25 years. So the board's key role, the executive committee's key role is to provide the type of senior business judgment senior uh, oversight and thought uh, around the board looking at the various decisions that the management team recommends and making sure they're the right ones. You know, we have, it's a pretty impressive group of people on the executive committee, just to name a few. Debbie Majoris is general counsel for Procter & Gamble. So in terms of really understanding brands and how to build a brand, how to deal with, uh, various uh, you know legal issues that may come up you know she's been helpful tom barkin who was a managing partner of mckinsey is now the chairman of the federal reserve bank of richmond so to say he's been busy lately in his day job is an understatement uh, and we have a number of other ceos and key people and then we have a number of great players you know martha lang uh, has qualified, I think, for 55 to 60 USGA events. She's a Curtis Cup captain. She's a former U.S. Mid-Am, uh, women's Mid-Am champion. So we have a group of people who love the game and also bring a whole different skill set to the table. But I do think that it will be helpful, particularly during this period that the term was lengthened to three years. Somebody asked me the other day, how's your term going? I said, well, all I'm doing so far is I've been on a couple conference calls at a minimum every day, dealing with a set of facts that changes every three or four days. And so far, essentially, what we've done is cancel championships. But uh, we do think we're doing the right thing. And, and we have a pretty strong and thoughtful agenda going forward we've really clarified what are we what is our goal what's our mission and uh, you know in a nutshell it's conduct great championships govern the game worldwide uh you know in part with the rna and that includes rules equipment standards amateur status and handicapping and then really champion and advance the game and that means supporting first tee it means supporting girls golf means supporting a host of environmental initiatives that the USGA has 
thrown its weight behind. It means supporting the back to golf effort that's just taking place now. It's what we thought about when we committed the $5 million support to the allied golf associations around the country. So we have a pretty clear view of what we should be doing to really promote the game. No question. And the world handicap system, I was actually um, a little confused by it at first. I mean, as an administrator, and yet I have embraced it now. I've attended the training. And of course, we, we run some handicap clubs in, in California. Uh, posted a big number the other day at Tory complained that I wasn't getting enough shots. And the next day I looked at my handicap and, and it's adjusted. And if I play that bandit again, I can go get another shot. So I, I yeah, think it's, it's really uh, working. Well, you know, it's interesting. It took a number of years to uh, reach the point of getting uh, agreement amongst all the major world handicapping authorities that we would move to the new system. It's based on the USGA's technology and the USGA system. But you do have to, uh, you know, usually to make a decision, you have to compromise or get people to agree to various things that are important to them. And it took a number of years to get to the right place, but we do think we got to the right place. And people ask me, well, why is it different than what the U.S. had before? And my answer is, well, we, we might have thought ours was the best, but a host of other national handicapping authorities had their perspectives and we had to honor and respect everybody's point of view even though as i say we ultimately use the usga's technology but we're happy with how that's rolled out and uh this is an interesting stat uh this is about a week old but through last week there had been uh almost 17 million scores reported on gin for 2020 which is up 5% from 2019, despite the fact that golf was shut down for six to seven weeks. So I think it does show you the, the mental health value of golf and that as soon as people could return to, to play, they did and we're ahead of last year. That's incredible. Well, and I think that uh, tournament business, we're, lo we're losing a lot of tournaments this year but there's a lot of reschedules. It's going to be an awfully busy fall. And as we talked about the U.S. Open, uh, John Bodenhammer has said amateurs are going to be a part of it. Uh, we know the U.S. Amateur is going to be held. And uh, I just really think that the USGA is, um, has a more important role than ever. You're going to bat for golf. And as you said, you didn't go too hard with the governmental authorities. We're doing it correctly. Uh, Stuart, anything you'd like to add before we um, wrap up? Well, I think that... Uh... The USGA's goal is really to promote the game of golf in the U.S. and worldwide. We did think very carefully about that as we made these decisions around the U.S. Amateurs and the U.S. Opens to say, let's lead the way with a responsible plan of competition that we have the highest possibility that we can deliver on. And that is why we went to a no qualifier. Uh, type format. But we think that, you know, the excitement of the game will return. I think it gives the rest of the associations the kind of leadership slash air cover that they can now look at championships and say, okay, let's decide if the U.S. Amateur is being played in August, the Women's Amateur is being played in August, the U.S. Open is being played in the New York area in September, 
that tells you that the USGA is comfortable with proceeding. So perhaps various state and regional associations should be as well. So we're optimistic about the rest of the year. Let's hope that as a country and as a world, COVID-19 turned out to be a tee shot deep into the woods, but we're chipping out to the fairway and there's still a lot of golf left to play. And I like that. I'd like to leave it. I'm 100% with you. So um, thank you, Stuart Francis, president of the United States Golf Association. Thanks for being on AmateurGolf.com. Pete, my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for all you do for the game.